we are in the book of 1 John, and I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles, if you would. What we want to do is uh, just reacquaint you with the book. This might be a very short little book. Uh, it is, if you read it. You can read it in a few minutes. Uh, it is, is a challenging book, uh, theologically, uh, and how it's structured is very interesting because, you know, he's 90-something years old. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody that's over 90. It's not always a linear conversation. Well, back in my day, and then, yeah, and, and it's kind of more like a spider web conversation than a linear conversation. That's kind of like John. So when you read John, you're thinking, what? I think he just covered this. Does he not know that he covered this? Yeah, he did, but he's 90. Give him some slack, you know, because um, we're all headed there, correct? Yeah, I'm Marty in case you don't remember me. So, But it's just, you know, it was more like a spiral, the way this book is taught. It's a spiral. He's going from this point to that point. He'll come back and talk about a similar point again. So when I was looking at... Um, you know, what I wanted for the, the title on my notes uh, for this, uh, I just kept the title from the last chapter because he's talking about the same thing. Uh, and, and, and he's repeating it, but he's repeating it in a fuller fashion. So um, if you ever come on a Sunday morning, you're thinking, Marty's repeating himself. It's not me. It's John. If you have an issue, when you see him, take it up with him. So that's kind of how it's structured. He's just kind of going around and around because he wants to make sure you really understand what it means to have fellowship with Jesus Christ. First of all, what it means to know Jesus Christ, the Savior, and then once you know him, how to maintain a rich fellowship with him. So we know uh, from going, doing a background study of this, uh, there was um, problems in the churches. A lot of the churches had split, to use our modern vocabulary. Uh, they had split. Many, many friendships had been destroyed. Uh, people that had gone to church for years together uh, left and weren't worshiping anymore because they were mad at the other people. And um, what had happened was uh, Gnosticism, uh, the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, this Gnostic teaching, this false teaching had infiltrated the churches, uh, and it basically divided people. That's what false teaching does. It came in, it was basically, we, we might call it incipient Gnosticism. It's when it was first starting to infiltrate the churches. Uh, and, and when the devil brings false doctrine into a church, it's never with a huge placard. You're never going to run into somebody in the lobby going, I teach false doctrine. Hey, <laughs> praise God. No, it's, it's sneakier than that. So it's like if, uh, if you're reading a compass bearing and you're off five degrees, it doesn't seem much when you walk 10 feet, right? you go 10 miles, you have an issue. And I speak from my past as a Boy Scout, learning that the hard way. Uh, <laughs> California, you can't flex with the coordinate readings, correct? Yes. And so you don't even use compass anymore, do you? Yeah, but the times have changed. Uh, but so they come into the churches and they're teaching uh, your physical body is evil and the, uh, your, your inner man is uh, that which is holy. So therefore, it does not matter what you do with your outer man. You want to party, you want to have fun, you want to have a bunch of partners, you want to do this, you want to do that. Hey, it's okay with me. Because that doesn't matter. What matters is the inner man, not the outer man. That's what they taught. So that, uh, that led to some problems in the church. Uh, and it kind of went in two different di directions. Um, since it didn't matter what the outer man was doing, then Christians would say, well, now that I'm, I'm saved by the blood of Christ, I can live and do whatever I want to do because his blood will cover my sin. Uh, well... I wouldn't challenge, challenge the holiness of God, but that's what they would do. It led in another direction, too, because the people who said, well, my outer body is evil. i got to do something to control it. Then it led to, like, asceticism, like people becoming type, like monks, to get away to control the body. Uh, and uh, so if they had a TV, they would have got rid of it. They had Verizon, got rid of it, had a cell phone, got rid of it, it's evil, etc. All these things that, you know, suck me into evil things, they began to cut themselves away from those. So it, it divided people because... If you were of that camp, then you were the esoterically enlightened one. And if you weren't of that camp, well, then you weren't spiritual. It divided. Uh, and it, it destroyed the churches. So what did John do? John comes along in 1 John and 2 and 3 John. Uh, and as the pastor who had uh, 
founded uh, many of these churches, saved many of these Christians, had shepherded them for years, uh, comes along as the pastor to those seven churches in Asia Minor that are recorded in Revelation chapters 2 to 3. Um, he comes to those churches and he, he basically tells them, I as your pastor and your shepherd, I, I, I love you, I, I'm concerned about you, and you, you bought into this progressive thinking. It's evil, it's wicked. Uh, it's creating what we would term a, a woke culture within the church, church uh, and it's evil. And I, and I need, and I need you to get you back to your walk with Christ. And so he's going to address, uh, as, we, as we see, uh, that Gnostic teaching, although he doesn't name it as such, what we know from New Testament history, that's what he's going to be talking about. Because it affected the deity of Christ. Because think of it, if, if, if Jesus is supposedly God in the flesh, what's wrong with the flesh and Gnostic thinking? The flesh is evil. Well, therefore, what's the logical conclusion? Well, the flesh is evil and, and Jesus claims to be God. He therefore could not be God in the flesh because the flesh is evil. How could God, by definition, inhabit a body that's wicked? Therefore, Jesus is not God in the flesh. See? So this is what he's dealing with. So the Christians destroyed churches. I don't know. Have you ever been in a church that has split? Wonderful experience, isn't it? Terrible. Yeah. I pastored a church that split. Talk about painful. Uh, it's painful. Uh, and how do you rebuild a church that it's split? It's tough. I've, I've done it. It's hard. It's emotional. You have friends that are divided over things. And after a while, you look back and think, we were arguing about what? But sometimes it's worth the argument, depending on what it was. This was worth the argument, the Gnostic teaching. And so we want to get back to what we talked about before, because uh, if you remember, if you were here, unless you're all new. Are you all new this morning? Or, no. This is, well, this is the early service. You're the spiritual ones, correct? <laughs> and so the, the visitors will be in the next service, right? So... So in, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he tells you the purpose of the book. And the purpose of his book is going to teach Christians how to maintain a deep fellowship with Jesus. I mean, your whole Christian life. So as you walk from, with Jesus the rest of your life, how do you have that intimate walk with him? Uh, and, and, I, and I related this a couple of months ago when we got into this about it's like marriage. When you get married, what do you want as a husband or a wife with your mate? But that 40 years from now, 60 years from now, you can still look at each other and say, you're, you're still my best friend. And I, and I still love you as much as I ever did, probably even more. You have that intimacy. That's what you want. And that's what you want with Jesus. So we want to talk, uh, and this is a main idea we already talked about before, so don't, don't accuse me of he's repeating himself because this is John repeating the same motif in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. He's going to talk to us further about how to develop that intimate relationship with Christ. How do you, and it's an energized one. It's not boring. I mean, if... <laughs> In John 10, 10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. You know, some Christians are like, they don't look like it's an abundant life. It looks like a depressed life. And, and it's like, you, you want to you understand that abundant life. So how do you have that? Well, you have a close relationship with Christ. So we've already looked at seven uh, uh, concepts of how to maintain that. That's in the last sermon. If you want to go back and review it online, you can. We want to cover uh, more today. We're going to cover number eight and number nine. Uh, motifs on how to keep an intimate relationship with Christ going. So number eight, the eighth answer is to, and that's a, there's supposed to be an H after the, the T, do you see? Someone is going to stop me and say, they won't even hear my sermon. Do you see the eight there? It's supposed to be eight, correct? Now we've addressed it. Now move on, all right? So I just noticed that this morning, didn't have time to fix it. So uh, the eighth answer is recognize you have a godly goal. Well, what's the godly goal? <clears throat> Notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. And bear, bear in mind, by the way, that in the original Greek text, there weren't chapters and verses. You, you follow me? Why? What happened? Did they fix it? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Uh, 
I have a home loan. Uh, <laughs> maybe they could wipe my home loan away. Back to the sermon. Uh, isn't God wonderful? He's behind the stage. Yeah, anyway, moving on. Thank you, whoever did that. Uh, so you try preaching up here and staying on target. It's not simple. Okay, verse one of two verses. Uh, my little children, John says, I am writing these things to you. Why? Does you mind not saying? Uh, little children. Um, why in the world does he call them little children? Um, this is used six times in the letter. He keeps calling them little children. Well, when you're with your grandpa, what are, and he's like old, you know, and anymore, what's that, <laughs> you know? Well, he's calling you a little child. Why? Because, well, if he's 65 or 70 and you're 10, you're, you're, you are a little child, right? Right? So if John's like 90 plus, he could probably call the whole church little children. You know, I remember when I was 10, that, that type of thing. Little children. Now, that is when your grandfather puts his arm around you and, and calls you, you know, his little child, his little granddaughter, whatever. It's just a sweet, endearing term, isn't it? And that, that's how John talks. I mean, at 90 years old, he's talking in a sweet, endearing term. All throughout his letter, um, he, he uses this term in chapter 2, verse 12, verse 28, chapter 3, verse 7, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 21. It's woven through there like a beautiful thread that he keeps stop, top, stopping and talking to them about how much I love you as your spiritual father. And to me, you're like spiritual children, and I want you to be mature. Because that's what you want from your children, right, is that they would grow up and be mature, drive your car, obey the speed limit listen to you, do things in a wise way. Well, that's what he wants for his spiritual children. He said, I've written, uh, he said, my little children, he said, I'm writing these things. And we want to pause and analyze this because the grammar is so important, is it not? Yes. Yeah, three people are with me, yes. Um, the grammar is so important. He said, he said, I'm writing these things. So the first hermeneutical question is, what does these things refer to? Um, does it refer to the entire book or does it refer to the context? Uh, because there were not chapter divisions and verses in the original text, uh, I think that he's still speaking about what he just spoke about in verses 5 to 10. These things refer just what he just talked about. Well, what did he just talk about? You said you weren't new. You were here the last time, so you should remember what we talked about in verses 5 to 10, correct? How do you maintain a rich fellowship with Jesus? Remember verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. That's how you maintain a religious uh, deep walk with Jesus is you have a confessional life. And that was, that was one of the seven things we looked at. So how do, you, how do you know how well you're doing as a Christian? How much time do you spend in a confession? Well, not much because I don't have that much sin. <laughs> okay, well, just that's sin right there. Like pride and you don't have any sin. So uh, we talked about that already. So let's move on. So he says uh, these things. I'm, he's talking about rich fellowship with Jesus. He says, I'm writing these things to you that you might not, that you might not sin. Um, what is the pastoral goal? I mean, I, I read this as a pastor going, I totally relate to this as a pastor. What is, the, what is my goal for you as, as little children here at the church, uh, uh, my flock, my you know, sheep, etc., is that you might not sin. I mean, that is the pastoral goal, is that you so understand what it means to walk with Jesus and what, what God has said is, is sin, that you know it and you don't do it. I wrote that you might not sin. What is sin? Uh, the Greek word is uh, hamartano, hamartano, or hamartia. Uh, it means to miss the mark. 
Uh, and it was, it was a military term. So like if you're shooting at a target, you're in, you're in boot camp, you're working out with an M16, you're on a 200-yard range, whatever it is, and you're trying to figure out how to hit that target, uh, and there's guys down in a ditch behind you, you know, moving the targets around, whatever they're doing. Um, if you miss that on purpose, that's, that's hamartia, right? Where you ever take rifle training and you're shooting and you don't hit the target or you don't get a tight grouping. I, nobody here knows how to shoot a rifle. That's shocking to me. You know what I'm saying? And so you, if you miss the target, you missed. You missed. If you did it on purposely, that'd be like willful sin. So that became the big word for sin was hamartia, is you missed, missed the mark. Uh, when I was uh, a youth pastor uh, a long time ago in San Diego in my 20s, um, I took my youth group to the little uh, country uh, mountainous town of Alpine, uh, California, uh, outside of east of San Diego, out uh, on Interstate 8. Um, and I rented a camp for my youth group, and uh, we, we were playing all kinds of games and having a great time. One day, we went out for archery training. These kids are from San Diego. They're surfer dudes. They don't shoot bows and arrows. And it was the funniest thing. So we lined them all up in a firing line, gave them all a bow and arrow. They had these huge haystacks, multiple haystacks. You know, told them to stand here. The object is to hit the target. Massive targets on huge pieces of hay. Uh, and you're know, like, fire! It was scary. <laughs> like, if they were going to defend us from the enemy or something like that, nobody was hitting the target. Arrows were going everywhere. And they fired and fired. And they got a little bit better. They were hitting the haystack and stuff like that. And as we're watching them shoot and arrows going everywhere, uh, some guy rides behind the haystack on a stingray bicycle. Well, what's up, man? What's up? Arrows are flying by him. Trust me, I understand what sin means. When it means you missed the mark, yeah, you missed the mark. You almost killed somebody. Because sin has repercussions, doesn't it? And that young kid, we're all screaming at him. He's like, hey, what's up? Hey, new friends. Arrows going by him. Uh, that's sin. So what is sin? Sin is missing the mark. Well, what's the mark for God? Well, it's what God said is sin. Whatever he says is sin is sin. He's the ultimate standard of measurement. Well, how do you know what sin is? Special revelation. What is special revelation? The Bible that you have either on your device or in your hand. Um, special revelation. Martin Lloyd-Jones said years ago, uh, sin means that we disobey God's holy law revealed to us. Sin is anything that is condemned in the Bible. He says it does not matter what it is. If the Bible tells us not to do it, then we must not do it. Sin is disobedience to God's revealed law. <laughs> so is it dangerous to sit in church and listen to someone like me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why? Well, because when you leave, you're going to know God said do this, and you're going, I ain't doing that. I have no intention of doing that. Uh, God's going to hold you accountable to what you heard. That's called special revelation. So you know what sin is based on special revelation. Sin also in entails what you know in your conscience, like moral law. We're all born understanding moral law. Uh, probably the greatest book, if you want to read it, I read it for my doctoral dissertation, uh, What We Can't Not Know by J. Bud Zizewski from a university in Texas in Austin. He used to be an atheist, used to te teach at Yale, rabid dog atheist, got saved based on the concept of moral law built into the fabric of the cosmos. This is the book to read on that concept. So if you don't believe in God... Read this book and ask yourself, where did the absolute concept of morality come from? It's an amazing book. But anyway, he, he waxes eloquent in that book based on, we all know in our minds, like, what is right and what is wrong. So uh, 
if you, if you need a pair of shoes and you go down, uh, you know, with your wife to Nordstrom's and you're walking through there at Tyson's, there's a Nordstrom's there, right? Yeah. And you know the shoes aren't going to be cheap and your wife just grabs a pair after she tries them on and just starts walking out of the place. And you're going, hey, wait, babe, hey, progressive thinking, way to go. Okay. <laughs> when she grabs those shoes and begins to leave, what are you going to be telling her, man? You got to pay for them. How do you know that? Uh, well, it's just the way the world works. You got to pay for them. I don't feel I have to pay for them. I feel like they just want to give them to me. And I'd be like, huh? No, you can't. No, no, can't base it law based on feelings. And so you know that you just can't do that, right? <laughs> Scary. You paused. You know you can't shop and grab whatever you want, right? Right, right. Uh, where did that knowledge come from of that was wrong? Well, it just came from you were hardwired to know that. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to what Paul says. He says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, the Torah, do instinctively, instinctively, the things that are in the law, these Gentiles, not having the law of Moses, they're a law unto themselves. Oh. And that they show the work of the law, the Torah, written where? In their hearts. What do you mean by that? Their conscience bearing witness. And their thoughts alternatively accusing or defending them. And on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of man through Christ Jesus. Whoa. So when God hauls you before him on judgment day, if you rejected him as Savior, as the Messiah, and you say, hey, I had no idea about special revelation. Yeah, but you knew about moral law because I built it into your body. So uh, we know that law exists. And so to, to, to deviate from it, to twist it, to re redefine it, uh, this is sin. And so what is sin? It's a willful departure from God's standard. It's either special revelation or that general revelation built into your, into your body that you, that you come to the world with. Now, we want to get back to us as Christians. Um, what is a great Christian life like? I mean, what is it really like? It, well, it's a life that knows what sin is. You know what sin is. You study sin so that you don't do it. You study it. It means you, you hate sin and you turn away from sin when you study it and understand it. And you, you grow up in Christ because you understand the goal is to live more holy today than I did yesterday. Uh, to live more holy by the time I get out of church than I did when I got to church. It's, it's that I might not sin. That's, that's, that's the whole point. Now, you have to ask yourself, is it possible to live a life sinless? No. No, it's not. Why? Well, because you have a fleshly body and it has desires and you're not going to be free from that fleshly body until you see Christ face to face. So until then, you, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, etc. You, you wrestle against the demonic realm, and you also wrestle, according to Romans 7, against your own sinful, well, proclivities. But you, you struggle. But the Spirit of God is that, when you get to Galatians 5, who gives you the strength to overcome the flesh. The Christian has the ability to overcome the power of the flesh. So it, the goal is to lead a life that, that's holy, uh, uh, setting that as my goal to be more sinless uh, this day than I was the prior day, but, but having a realistic view of, about myself that I am going to trip and fall. But, but God wants me to strive for being sinless. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the moment that you sin, fellowship with Jesus is broken. He says, the moment you fall into this kind of transgression, you interrupt fellowship. He says, the one thing that matters is fellowship with God. He's absolutely right. See, as a Christian, that's what matters. That when you get up in the morning, what matters? That you have a tight, intimate relationship with Jesus. 
and you have it all day, every day, and you're working on it. How do you work on it? Well, you cover the, the seven to eight things we've talked about so far. One, number eight is you have in your mindset a goal that today it's holy living, which means I give up things that are not God's target. Um, how are you doing? That's the question, isn't it? How, how are you doing? I mean, are you going more uh, toward holiness and away from sin? And is there sin that you need to, like, confess? I mean, the Holy Spirit's got his finger on it right now that you know I got to get right with that. Well, the godly goal is to head toward holiness, which means I got to walk away from that things that are evil. Number two, number nine, how do you have an intimate walk with God? Uh, well, if he says here, let's talk about the gift that he's given you. This is an amazing little section of scripture. He says, now he's speaking, who's he contextually speaking to? Christians. So he's saying, if, if, if any Christian sins, he says, I'm going to tell you, you have two gifts. Number one, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is he? Jesus Christ. What's he like? You're righteous. He's righteous. Now, this is a conditional sentence. It's called a third-class condition in Greek, which means we don't really know if you're going to you know, do this or not. But if anybody does sin, which is you're going to sin, uh, what happens then? So does that mean if you bite the spiritual dust sometime today because of sinful activity in your life, it's over for you? as a Christian? Uh, does that mean if you shake your fist in God's face with some kind of sin that you're hanging on to, that you know after church today, I, sh I really need to address that addiction or whatever the sin is, and you, and, you, and you don't do it? Does that mean it's over for you? No. But he does say, if anyone sins, you do have an advocate. Now, I don't know how you feel about a copula in Greek. It's awesome. It's the main verb. He says, we have. Not we had, we have. It's the present tense. Is it important? Yeah, it's real important. And there's two ways you can classify that particular we have present tense verb. You can make it nomic. If it's nomic, uh, G-N-O-M-I-C, uh, -O nomic, and it means it's a truth for all time, meaning we always have Jesus as an advocate. Don't you like that? And it could also be the durative use of the main verb. We constantly have Jesus. Well, we constantly need Jesus because we constantly do what? Sin. And when you sin and you're trying to live a holy life, and you sin, uh, it's, is it over for you? No, because he's rich in mercy and grace, and he wants you to go to confession. He will restore you, but realize that you always have Jesus as, a, as an advocate. Now, advocate is not a Greek term. It's a Latin term. Uh, uh, advocatus is the word in Latin. Uh, this Greek word is parakletos. Uh, and parakletos uh, is a word uh, that means literally one who comes to somebody else's aid, like a buddy. Somebody who comes when you're in a desperate situation uh, and helps you. Like you're trapped in a car and a fireman shows up with the jaws of life. He's a parakletos, right? Because what's he going to do? He's going to use the jaws of life to get you out of there. See, that's Jesus. He's like somebody who comes alongside to aid you. Uh, now, if you read Danker's Greek lexicon of the New Testament, uh, which covers the lexical etymology of all the words, uh, you can read, and I put it in my notes here, the entry of parakletos, oh, what it means. Uh, the primary usage uh, is someone who comes alongside you. But a secondary usage is an attorney. That's how we use it in their culture. Jesus is your attorney. Why does he have to be your attorney? Well, let's, let's drill down into this. Uh, Parakletos. Uh, Jesus uh, says in John chapter 14, verse 16, before he leaves, after he's crucified and resurrected, before he leaves, notice what he says. Jesus tells the disciples... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going away, but I'm going to ask the Father, and he, the Father, will give you another, what? Helper. What's his job? Well, that he may be with you forever. 
Uh, we know from John 14, 16 and the following verses, verse 17, uh, that this is the Holy Spirit. But the word translated in the King James here, helper, or in the New American Standard, helper is parakletos. It's one who comes alongside you. So if Jesus is saying, I'm going to send another one to come alongside you, he's making the, the statement uh, that I also am a parakletos. I am also an advocate because I'm sending another one. And then he also uses a, an interesting Greek word here because English is very limited when it comes to the word other. We only have one word for other. They have two. So there, the word Jesus uses here for a, a, another one is the word alos. Alos means another of the same kind. If he used the word heteros, well, that's another of a different kind, correct? And so what he does here is Jesus says very specifically, I'm going to send another one, alos, another of the same kind, who's going to come help you. That means I'm going to send another divine one like me. Who's that? The Spirit of God. Who's coming to who? You as a Christian. What's he there for? To help you with your Christian walk. Aren't you glad you got him? You got backup, as it were. Um, so he's, he's sending another one. So Jesus is saying, I am, uh, along with the Holy Spirit, uh, we're, we're your helper. We come alongside you when you sin to assist you. Uh, he is your, to, to use the legal terminology, he's your defense attorney. And it says he's, he's, a, he's Jesus Christ the just. He's the righteous. Why is that thrown in there? To tell you he's totally qualified to do the job. Because who wants to hire a lousy attorney? Have you ever hired a lousy attorney? He says, well, he's not going to be a lousy attorney. Let's just back up. There's some major stuff going on here. Why in the world do you need an attorney on the divine level in the heavenlies? Why? Because of the devil. What's he do? He has many names. Uh, in Matthew 4, verse 3, he's called the tempter. Uh, in, Ma in Revelation 12, 9, he's called the, the deceiver. Uh, in Re Ephesians 2, 2, he's called the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. He's working overtime today. Uh, and then when you get to Revelation 12, 10, he's called the accuser. And then when you go back and you read Job chapter 1, you know, there came a day when Satan was walking among the sons of God. And he brought a charge against Job. And he tells God, hey, have you considered Job? You know, I think if you just turn him loose to me, I can rock his world. He will reject you. And so that began this whole contest of Job. Um, what's the devil doing? He's allowed into the courtroom of God to bring accusation in a judicial sense against God's people. Now, don't ask me why God permits that. Okay, I know I'm anticipating you. Tons of emails. No one knows God permits it. But there's a day when we went through Revelation when God allows the angels to kick him out of the throne room. That day's coming. But until then, God listens to Satan bring accusation. <laughs> Can you believe Larry? I'm not, and if you're Larry, I'm not, choosing, I'm not choosing you. It's just the name. Can you believe Larry? You know, I mean, you, you call him your child. Look what he just did. I mean, you got your eyes on him? I mean, he's done the same sin the same way for year after year. He berates his wife. He criticizes her. He destroys her. He makes fun of her. He doesn't understand why she's upset at him. What in the world is his problem? What a loser. When that's going on, who's there to represent you before the father? The father's sitting there going, oh, yeah, that's Larry, all right. Wow, why'd I save him? Who's there to help you? Jesus. What's his job? He's your advocate. He's your defense attorney. He's there to defend you. Why? Because you're his child and he loves you. And he will defend you until he calls you home. I don't know about you. I am glad I have that kind of attorney. Uh, <laughs> because I've hired a bad attorney before. Like on the planet. Let me tell you a story. 
Uh, my freshman year at Dallas Seminary, Eliza and I didn't have a lot of money, you know, living downtown, you know, by the seminary, um, wondering how we're going to make it. She's working in dentistry, doing church at slight assisting for a doctor. Uh, I'm working odd jobs in, you know, working at the school as a, as a gardener and stuff, working for Allied Van Lines, you know, trying to, trying to make it. You've always wondered, like, how do I have all these jobs? Survival. And so one day, you know, uh, I get a call from Liz. She and her friend, uh, Don Stansel, uh, Don used to be a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. So they're coming home in Don's car to lunch. They work together at the dental office. Uh, and a city truck pulled in front of them and hit them. And Liz hit the windshield. And we'd only been married like three years at the time. I'm like, huh? So Liz called me all frantic. We're in an intersection. Just got hit by a city utility truck. I hit the windshield. You know, I think I need to go to the hospital, etc. So, So we who had very little money, she winds up in emergency uh, and they take care of her, etc. So uh, I did what every American should do. I got an attorney because I didn't have the money for the medical bill, and it wasn't my problem. I mean, I didn't cause Liz didn't cause a wreck. Don was driving, hit the utility truck, turned in a section in front of him. So I got an attorney. My attorney got our case together, went to the city council, presented our case. You know, it took a while to get there to present our case to city council. The attorney back, came back to me, and I, I said, "Well, like, what happened in the meeting last night?" Well, I presented your case to the city council. Okay, and like, well, you know, what'd they say? They won't pay. What'd you do? I walked out. Huh? Aren't you supposed to like debate my case or something? No, I just, I just left. They won't pay. I go, are you out of your mind? So I call my mom's brother, my uncle Ray, who was an attorney in California. I'm like, uncle Ray, how's this, how does an attorney, how, how are they supposed to function in a court of law? Because this is how mine's functioning. So my uncle Ray told me how to put the fire into this attorney. So I'm teaching this guy how to be an attorney. He, he goes back before the city council, presents my case again in the way my uncle Ray said to do it, and the city council paid our medical bill and gave us money for pain and suffering. And as a side note, that paid for tuition. It did. It paid for tuition. So the next semester, I told Liz, could you have a... <laughs> anyway, um, anyway. <laughs> I'm just saying, that didn't go over well. Um, because if you, if you have something going on, you want a primo attorney, right? So you're going to blow it this week as a Christian. I mean, you are because you have, you have sin. You're going to blow it. And when you do, just realize it's not over for you that in the heavenlies, you have an attorney there arguing your case before the Father. Uh, and he's, he's telling, she's mine. I, I know she's done this before, but she's mine. And I'm going to defend her. I'm going to defend him until I see him face to face. Devil, you be gone. Aren't you glad Jesus is there for you? He's, he's your defense attorney. You're not going to have to do to him like what I had to, you're not going to have to get together with Jesus and go, get your act together. Defend me. No, he's there. And then number two, gift number two, he's your propitiator. Now, I know it's a word you don't use much. Jesus is my what? Propitiator. Propitiation. Verse two. It says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but for those of the whole world. Uh, he is, again, the present tense or nomic use of the verb. He is, he's always your propitiation. Uh, and the word here, he, the, the personal pronoun, autus in Greek, the way it's placed in the sentence, it's totally emphatic in Greek. It says, he really is your propitiation. Now, you could read this entire book on propitiation, the whole book on the Greek word propitiation by Leon Morris, the apostolic preaching of the cross. It's a word study on one word. If you want to get into it, I'll summarize propitiation for you. God covers your sin so he doesn't see it and so he doesn't judge it. That's basically, I just saved you a couple hours. Uh, 
the Hebrew word in the Old Testament is kippur. Kippur means to cover. That's what they called the mercy seat above the, you know, above the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place of covering. Why? When the priest would go in there on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, your sin was covered. I tell you what, the greatest thing that ever happened to you as a Christian is you got your sin covered. Your sin is covered. He's always there to cover your sins. So when the devil brings accusation and the father hears the accusation from the devil and he looks at his son, your advocate, what's he see when he looks at the son? He sees nail scars. He sees hands that have been pierced. He looks down at his son's feet and he sees feet that have been scarred from a crucifixion. And the father realizes that that sin is covered. I am no longer angry and, and judgmental toward that person. They're my child. Case dismissed. Next. Aren't you glad Christ is your propitiation? He's your coverage. He's your coverage. So that even when the devil brings accusation, well, the father's there working with the son to tell the devil to his face, no, their sin's covered by the blood of Christ. And I see the nail scars. He also adds here, he's not only our propitiation, he's the propitiation for those of the whole world. And we have to address this quickly. Does that mean the whole world is saved? Nope. No. It just means he provides propitiation for those who come to him in faith. He then applies it to them. It's available. Uh, Zane Hodges, who taught Greek at Dallas Seminary when I was there, says this about that particular clause. He says, the removal of sin as a barrier to God's saving graces does not automatically bring regeneration and eternal life. While God's holy and just requirement that sin receives his judicial retribution uh, is fulfilled at the cross, the sinner remains dead and alienated from life in God. Faith is the prescribed way for this alienation to be bridged. How is it bridged? Through our Savior's sacrifice. And you have to agree that Jesus died for you. And the day he, you realize that, your sin's covered. There's two kinds of people in the world today. Those whose sins are covered by the blood of Christ and will walk into heaven to see him face to face. And those whose sin is not covered by the blood of Christ. Your choice. I hope you make the, the right choice because it will change your life and it will put you into a rich fellowship with God himself who will be your defense attorney and constantly tell the Father, no, their sin's covered. I can think of, think of no greater way to live. I hope you have a great day. Uh, you have one goal today is to move to holiness and away from sin. And if you don't think you have much sin, just ask God to show you. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thank you for the clarity of Scripture. Might we be obedient to that which we heard uh, so we can grow up in the faith. And if anyone is among us who's in that last group whose sin is not covered by the blood of Christ, might this be the day in simple childlike faith they fall before you and say, Lord, cover me today by your blood, and you'll do it for all time. In Christ's name, amen.